rest of the video. Um, if you go to YouTube and you just search for is Christianity too narrow that the video goes on for another 10 minutes um, but I thought I would whet your appetite um, by showing that much it's a question that needs to be asked and answered is Christianity too narrow is it an exclusive arrogant um, judgmental claim to say that Christianity has the truth is it actually wrong um, to believe that Jesus Christ, as um, one of the presenters was saying, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that is God. Do all spiritual roads lead to the same end so that the individual journeys don't really matter? Should we stop trying to evangelize or share about Jesus with others since their beliefs are just as legitimate as ours? And so why even bother sharing? Let them continue to believe what they believe and we'll believe what we believe and to each, to each his own, Right? Aren't all religious worldviews the same after all? And that is the, one, of the, one of the common beliefs. And it's a question that I want to examine and explore um, together this afternoon. Because as uh, the two gentlemen in the video discussed, the idea of tolerance, the idea of being open to all religions, and the idea of saying they're all the same and that they're all achieving the same end, it's a really nice idea. But the question is, is it a good idea? I want to explore by looking at a story and kind of going off of the application of that story. This is ancient Athens, um, a picture, an artist's depiction of Athens. And it was an impressive city that in the 4th century BC was the political center um, of the Roman, uh, well, of Greece in that time. But what happened was by the first century, um, it was no longer the political center. Actually, Corinth, if you remember about a, a month ago, I preached about um, on Valentine's Day about Corinth and how that city was actually the political center of the Roman Empire and not Athens. But despite the fact that Athens had dwindled in size down to about 25,000 people uh, by the first century, it was still a very important city. It was a city that uh, was a symbol for the intellectual and the spiritual journeys. It was the city of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. And so Athens was still a very, very important city. And if you go there today, you can still see the um, really, you know, jaw-dropping, amazing um, artifacts that remain. Um, and of course, this is the Parthenon um, that was dedicated, a temple dedicated to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And by the time that Paul, who was um, a Jew who had converted to Christianity and had um, been traveling around um, that area, um, just going from city to city, sharing about Jesus, he came to Athens in AD 51, around then, and he had no particular agenda when he arrived. Certain cities, he was actually going in order to share the message of Jesus. Like, for example, he was very um, intentional and, and desiring to go to Corinth, that political center. But he didn't actually mean to stay long in Athens, but because um, he was in a previous city and there was persecution, so he was fleeing from that city, ended up in Athens, and he was in Athens waiting for his companions, um, Silas and Timothy, to come join him. So he was only there in transit. But while he's there, this is what the story says. In Acts chapter 17... That's a map of, you can see Corinth there and Athens there, um, of ancient 
um, Roman Empire there. And here we have the story in a book called Acts, which was written by a doctor named Luke, um, a physician named Luke. And Luke wrote this uh, story of Paul because he actually accompanied Paul in a lot of his missionary trips. And so sometimes he'll say they, and sometimes he'll say we, because he was there uh, when the story was happening. So he records this story. He says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. One of the um, Greek historians, the ancient historians, wrote that Athens had about 30,000 gods. 30,000 gods. And so they would have altars all over the city. And the historian wrote that it was actually easier. He kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek said, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Because <laughs> 25,000 people, 30,000 gods, right? And so Paul, you know, he's there, he's waiting for his friends to come. So he's, you know, he's out in the streets, sightseeing, kind of walking around. And he sees these many, many altars to the different gods. And the story records that he was greatly distressed, um, that he was stirred up inside, that he wanted to respond to their worldview. And the way he does this is interesting. He says, it says that he went into the synagogue, which was where the Jews worshipped, and he reasoned with them, uh, both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and he also went to the marketplace. And in the ancient times, the marketplace was where all the dialogue was happening. The marketplace is where the uh, ideas were exchanged. Um, today would be our internet, and for them it was the marketplace. And so there Paul goes. And notice how the word there um, is... Let's see if I can get this. To, yep, there it is. Um, is reasoned, and the original Greek word there is um, dialogued. It's the Greek word from which we get dialogued. And so this is not just a street evangelist standing in the corner, right, just yelling. That's not Paul's style. Um, Paul is there reasoning. He's using the Socratic method, questioning, debating, talking with them, um, bringing up different points, listening, right? He's dialoguing with them. Now, it's interesting what happens next. It says that a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Europe. I can never say this, Areopagus, <laughs> in other words, Mars Hill, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And this is Dr. Luke's kind of comment um, on the side. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and, and listening to the latest ideas. So this is what he thinks of um, what's going on in Athens. But notice what happens here. So Paul is there in the marketplace talking, reasoning, dialoguing, exchanging ideas. And um, it says the Epicureans and the Stoics bring him in the, aside and they say, hey, we want to hear more. We want to understand more what you're saying. This is something completely new to us. Come to our council. And um, the Epicureans were those who followed the philosopher Epicurus from the 4th century BC. And Epicurus basically said, and I think I have a slide up here. By the way, this is kind of... Um, the area on Mars Hill where they would have these council meetings. And that's basically where um, Paul probably was able to have his dialogue with them. But Epicurus, you know, you've heard that 
um, were before. The idea is, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, right? Um, and the idea is that, sorry, I'm just going to turn this off. The idea is that um, the ultimate goal of life is to pursue pleasure. The ultimate goal of life is to pursue pleasure. Epicureans denied the existence of any divinity. Um, they believed pretty much that there were no gods, or at least none that were interested in your life. And so all you have to this life is, you know, the years you live. So make the most of it, enjoy it, um, and, you know, just pursue pleasure in moderation because they knew that if you overindulge, you would suffer. So pursue pleasure in moderation, and that was basically the Epicureans' philosophy. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed in the gods, um, but they believed that there was fate, that the gods determined everything, and that the best way to live was actually to live um, responsibly, ethically, make good decisions, be a good citizen, help your neighbor, um, and basically, uh, you know, the purpose of life is happiness, which is achieved by virtue, living according to dictates of reason, ethical and philosophical training, self-reflection, careful judgment, and inner calm. So be that calm, collected, um, responsible, ethical person living your life the best you can. So those are the two main kind of uh, groups of thought. And then you also had you know, just um, a third group of people who kind of took a potpourri of different ideas and you know, if there were 30,000 gods, well, then they worshipped all 30,000 of them. And, you know, they would just kind of um, live in order to appease the anger of the gods. So they would take their sacrifices and they would, you know, if they wanted a child, they would go sacrifice to fertility goddess and, and ask it for a blessing. Or if they wanted more riches or more rain for their crops, and they would go to that god and ask for rain. And so they would kind of live um, trying to appease the different gods in their lives in order to, to get what they wanted. So Paul basically addresses these three groups of people, and the council that he was addressing was an elite group. This council was only made up of the nobility, and um, in order for that nobility uh, to be a part of that nobility, you know, your generations, your family generation, had to go way back, and you know, it was a very exclusive council that determined the. Uh, administrative and educational and kind of philosophical, religious culture of Athens. So there he is at this very, you know, prestigious council trying to tell them about Jesus. And if you look at what happens next, he starts sharing, um, and it's a famous sermon called, you know, Sermon on Mars Hill. And this is how he starts. Paul then stood up in the meeting um, of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. In other words, while he was walking around, 30,000 plus right altars to the different gods, he had found one that said, altar to an unknown God. So he seizes that opportunity to say, look, I know that you are very religious. I know you're on this journey. You're trying to seek God. And he says, I'm going to proclaim to you about this God that you don't know of yet. And so at first, he seems to be just saying, here's another one, right? He seems to be adding a 30, you know, 30,000 and first God to their list of gods and saying, here's 
another one that you can worship. So they're all ears. And they're kind of curious. Okay, tell us about this God. But then this is what he shares about this God. He says, uh, and bear with me as I read this a little bit longer here. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So just in case you thought Paul was, you know, quoting the philosophers of their time, the poets of their time, right? He's using their culture, using what, uh, where they were. But he, the message is very different, isn't it? Even though his, his method is one that they could relate to because he's talking about philosophy and, and literature and, um, you know, the, the altar to the unknown God, his message is very much Jesus Christ created all things, Jesus Christ sustains all things. Jesus Christ is God, and he, we know this, and we have proof of this, because he's resurrected. Now, you have to keep in mind Paul's background. He was a man who did not believe in Jesus Christ. He was a man who actually went and killed Christians because he hated them so much. He was actually the biggest enemy of Christianity. But now he became one of the greatest champions. What happened? And when you go back and read about Paul's history, you find out that he basically witnessed firsthand the resurrected Jesus Christ. He actually saw Jesus. He was on his way to kill some more Christians. He was on his way to to Damascus. And there he uh, saw in a vision Jesus Christ who said to him, why are you persecuting me? And Paul actually dialogues with Jesus. And um, at the end of that dialogue, Jesus tells him what to do. He says, I want you to go into a specific city. This specific person is going to minister to you. And Saul, at that point, because he had seen uh, this bright vision, actually goes blind. And I preached about this last year. But what happens is once he goes into that city, just as Jesus had told him to do, and he's in his blindness for three days. And, you know, can you imagine his worldview has completely been opened up by this new encounter? And then that specific person that Jesus had already told him would come and heal him comes, lays hands on him and heals him so that he goes from being blind to being able to see. Now for Paul, that was enough. Having seen Jesus Christ for himself, having experienced the miracle of being blind and then being able to see, and of course, because he was educated in the Jewish faith, he knew what the Bible uh, said about the Messiah. So he went back and was able to study it all out and realize how he had been wrong. So for Paul, there is not a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is God. And because he's so convicted of that truth, because he saw him, because he experienced him, because he, he understood um, what the scripture said about Jesus, he was able to boldly go anywhere 
and proclaim Jesus Christ. And you know, his message was something that a lot of people struggled to accept. Notice how they were, they're asking, what is this babbler saying? What is this about Jesus Christ? What is it about the resurrection? And even though um, they believed in the gods, the Roman, the Greco-Roman um, citizens, most of them did not believe in the resurrection. Most of them did not believe that you know, someone who died can come back to life. And so the fact that Paul was preaching about a man who resurrected was something that they just found extremely difficult to believe. And so when you read on, it says, therefore, oh, sorry, I didn't finish um, Paul's sermon. Let me finish that off for you. It says, um, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And then this is the response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. I like how he knew when it was appropriate. He's like, yep, I've said what I wanted to say. They've asked questions, I've answered, I've given them this uh, exchange. And then he leaves. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, the member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demarius and a number of others. I don't know if it was Paul's genuineness. I don't know if it was the logic of what he was explaining, or, or perhaps it was the Holy Spirit working in their hearts, but a few of them did believe. Even though some sneered, even though some said, this is impossible, how could, it, how could this be? A few still believed. And those few grew in number as Paul traveled. And when you look at the history of Christianity, it started with such a small group of people, a small group of people that said, we witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. When you look at history um, and you look at what, what, how Christianity was birthed, these individuals that said, we have seen Jesus Christ resurrected, could not be refuted. In other words, often when myths are born, folklore and myths and legends, they're born because somebody says, this happened however many years ago. And because nobody had been around at that point, there's no one who can confirm it nor deny it, right? But here's the thing about Christianity. When the disciples were going around saying, Jesus has resurrected, they were sharing that with the very generation that actually saw Jesus live and die. And there were people amongst their uh, witness who had seen Jesus resurrected. Because Jesus, after he resurrected for 40 days, was walking around and teaching and talking to the disciples. And so, for them to have seen Jesus Christ for themselves, to be willing to die for that faith, it wasn't something that was made of legend. It wasn't something that they believed because someone told them. It was something that they believed because they had witnessed it firsthand. And that's why they were willing to die for it. And because they were willing to die for it, others said to themselves, wait a second, either they're crazy, right? And they all had some kind of massive delusional attack, or they're actually right. And the question is, if they're actually right, then what implication does that have for me? What does that mean for my worldview? 
What does it mean that if Jesus Christ really resurrected and he really was everything he said he was, then all of a sudden we are challenged with the question, then could Christianity be right? I'm going to skip ahead to this. There's a man named C.S. Lewis. He was a Christian uh, apologist and scholar who used to be an atheist. Um, living in England, and he said, oh, there is no God, and you know, was, was actively against um, Christianity and other, other religions that, that taught about a God. And he went on this journey, and you can read about him, but basically he became convicted that Christianity was right. And he wrote this book called Mere Christianity that um, has helped a lot of people actually um, understand the Christian faith. And this is what he says in the book. He says, look, Jesus made these claims. And these aren't just minor claims. He made huge claims. For example, he claimed to have authority to forgive sins, behaving as if he really was the person chiefly offended in all uh, offenses. In other words, if, you know, Janelle hits Crystal, then she only has to apologize to Crystal. But when Jesus says, "You, I forgive you, that means somehow you've, you've wronged Jesus in that process. And so Jesus is claiming not only to be able to forgive, but to actually be the one that um, deserves some kind of apology, if that makes sense. Jesus also claimed to have always existed. He claimed to have created the world, and he claimed that he was going to come back to judge the world at the end of time. These are huge claims, right? Can you imagine if someone came here today and got up here and said, I have always existed, right? We would say, you're crazy, (laughs) And that's actually what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the kind of things that Jesus said make him either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. A lunatic, a liar, or Lord. And he says, you can only choose those three. You cannot say, oh, Jesus was a good guy. And no one can deny the historicity of Jesus Christ. In other words, there are so many records that show that Jesus Christ was an actual historical figure. What the controversy about is whether or not he was Lord. And many people will say, oh, he was a good man. He taught good things. You know, um, yeah, I believe he was a good person. But C.S. Lewis says you can't say he was a good man because of the things he claimed. He was either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. Um, And this is how he puts it. He says, I'm trying to, let me get to the point here. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him as claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for being a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely as it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And he came to this conclusion after having studied the history, having looked at the disciples, how they had so much boldness. It's one thing to claim something and believe it for yourself. But it's another thing to die for that. 
If someone threatens your life, then you better be sure that you really die for it because it's true. And the fact that all those disciples in, the, in that first century, most of them were martyred, right? Most of them were martyred. They were all willing to die for their faith because it wasn't just something that they just wished they could believe. It was something they could not deny. The fact that they had seen Jesus Christ resurrected was a fact that they were willing to die for because it was something that, they was, that for them was as true as the existence of Shane or Crystal amongst us today. And when you believe something to be that true, then you're willing to die for it. And that witness is what caused many others, um, as they looked at their witness, as well as the evidence in scripture, as they looked at prophecy, as they looked at archaeology, etc., etc., thousands and millions of people have become Christian for that, um, as a result of that. And even in my own life, when I look back and I ask myself sometimes, what would my life have been like if I weren't a Christian? And, you know, whenever I, I do Bible studies with individuals, um, I like to ask that question. What would, your, what would change if you believed that Jesus Christ is Lord? And, you know, when I look at, back in my life growing up, um, I had a very tumultuous childhood in, 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 this, in the sense that um, we moved every two years, at least every two years, sometimes every one year. Um, and that's because of the nature of my dad's uh, work. But growing up, I had so much instability in my life, right? Can you imagine? I was basically a new kid in school every other year. Um, and one of those transitions was, was even from Korea to America. So it was a huge transition. I didn't know English at all. Um, and it was a terrifying, I was eight years old, terrifying experience walking into this new American school and not being able to even know the alphabet. And when you're an immigrant family and the, and the things you have to go through financially and, of course, because you don't really know the culture and the society, you have no idea like how to even go to the doctor or how to fill out the forms for school. And so I just grew up with a lot of stress in the family. And when I look back and think about how in the midst of that instability, I was able to have peace, I was able to have joy, I was able to have hope, um, was because I believed in a God that listened to my prayers. I don't want to bore you with all the stories of how God answered my prayers, but I'll give you one specific example. Um, one day, our family, you know, we were just going through so much um, financial stress, and one time, we just didn't even have the money to put petrol in the car to go to church. And back in those days, you know, you could fill up the tank for like $20, you know? And, and in America, petrol's a lot cheaper. And so we just needed $20 to be able to fill up the petrol to go to church. Didn't have it. All, you know, all the money went to the bills. Didn't have it. And it was Friday, and we just got together as family, and we prayed. Because there was no other way. There was no other way this money would come. And so we just prayed, and we said, God, we don't have the money to put petrol in the car to go to church. And then um, after we prayed that prayer, my dad um, went down to check the mail, and there was an envelope with $20 in it. And that's just one small example of the many, many, many times throughout my childhood where we were facing, whether it was financial or whether it was emotional, um, whether it was you know, um, a test of our, our faith, um, many, many instances where I needed something or 
um, I asked for something and God provided. And it didn't mean that we were wealthy. It didn't mean that you know, I was rolling around in blessings, but it meant that what I needed, I got. I'll tell you another short story. When I was about to graduate from high school, um, I, you know, as a Seventh-day Adventist, I believe in keeping the Sabbath, and graduation was on a Saturday morning. And you know, it was a dilemma. Do I go? And um, I needed to be making a speech that day. Do I go and make the speech, or do I go to church? And do I honor what um, really belongs, all the praise belongs to God for, for leading me here? Um, rather than the glory being on myself. And I just tell this story just to illustrate how, how faithful God is. And um, I, I chose to go to church, and um, it became something that actually gave me an opportunity to share with a lot of people about my faith because they actually ran the story in the, in the local newspaper. And people that I had gone to school with, you know, they all knew I was a Christian, um, but they actually called me up and asked me, can you tell me more about what you believe? And I ended up doing Bible studies with several of my, um, my, my colleagues, uh, my, my uh, fellow students. And what happened is after graduation, at, in the evening, they would have this uh, graduation party that the school and the, and the parents, you know, the student teacher association put together for us. And um, they were giving out different things, you know, so that you could get ready for uni. Because in America, you go actually away from home and go into campus life, away from your parents, and you kind of have your own dorm room, and it's a whole different life than here where you just, like, go and come home and commute. But um, they were giving out different things, backpacks, you know, they were giving out gift cards to um, kind of like Best Buy, which is like JB Hi-Five, you know, that kind of thing. And um, one of the things that they were giving out was a laptop. And like I said, we grew up, my dad was a literature evangelist, and so he's going door to door, like trying to sell religious literature, which I can tell you is not very popular. And so, you know, we didn't have the extra money for me to have a computer to go to school, to go to uni. And um, my sister had come with me to this party. She was my plus one. And so we, we went, and, you know, they were giving out different things. And what they would do is each student would get a number, and then they would call the number, and, you know, whatever that prize was, everybody would walk away with something. And you could get, like, a fish tank to take, you know, home and, I guess, have a pet, you know? Um, and so I'm like, you know, I don't really want the fish tank. I don't really want a backpack. I really need a laptop. And so my sister and I just prayed. We prayed, God, um, need a laptop. And we said, thank you for the laptop. <laughs> and we, that was, like, the shortest prayer. That was literally it. Thank you for the laptop. You know we need it. And about half an hour later, they call out the different names and the different numbers, I went up to claim my number, and the woman said, because there was only one laptop, there were about 500 students, and the woman said to me, oh, you lucky girl, you got the laptop. And, you know, and I grabbed my box, and I turned around, a big smile on, fa- on my face, and um, I'm walking back, and my friend, who was an atheist, who didn't believe in God, um, you know, I was really good friends with her for four years, she turned to me and she said, God gave you that laptop because you were faithful to him this morning and went to church instead of um, making your speech. And this is my atheist friend. You know, I was kind of shocked to myself. You know, I didn't expect that from her. Um, and you know, it just kind of struck me that when we make that statement that God is real, when we make that statement that God exists, we're not just saying that because it's a wishful thinking, something that works for us, that somehow just is good for my life. Hopefully we're making that statement because it's true. Because 
it changes our lives. It changes the way we, we choose what we do. It changes the, the perspective and the outlook on life. And when we, when we believe from the bottom of our core, and I do, and I have for a long time, and, and, I, and I didn't, it wasn't just because I was born in a Christian faith. Um, I had grown up, you know, ever since I was eight years old, I was actually baptized when I was eight. And from the age of eight onwards, I, my family would read the Bible regularly together. Um, and when I was in high school, I researched. I researched and read, I think, at least 20 books on Christianity, on archaeology, on history, on the different religions, you know. And I really had come to the conclusion for myself that Christianity was the truth. I had come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was real. And like I said, the miracles in my life, the stories, the prophecy, the Bible studies, I had done everything. I had gone to church. I, I had put myself in that situation where I knew without a shadow of a doubt that God existed. And to be able to then see someone who didn't believe in God say, yep, there must be a God. I realized that when we are so convicted ourselves, right? when we are so convinced ourselves, then others will begin to open their minds to the fact that perhaps what we believe is true. And if what we believe is true, then they begin to change and, and shift and refine their worldview to put this Christ then at the center of it. And I guess that's my question to you this afternoon. Is God, is Jesus Christ, do you have in the corner of your heart, you know, this altar to this unknown God? Perhaps you believe in many things. Perhaps you serve a lot of things. Perhaps you honor a lot of things. Perhaps you're pursuing a lot of things, whether it's your career, whether it's your studies, whether it's your relationship, whatever. And those are all good things. But what is at the center of it? What is driving your life? What is the purpose behind everything that you do? And if there is in the corner of your life, in the corner of your heart and mind, an altar to this unknown God, I want to challenge you to get to know this God, to be open to the sharing of a man named Jesus Christ who died for us because he loves us and because he resurrected and he is coming again. And I want to challenge you to study for yourself. I want to challenge you to get to know this Jesus for yourself. Because if so many people are willing to die for this man, isn't it worth at least checking out who was he and why are so many people willing to believe in him? And as we get to study for ourselves, it is my prayer that we will be able to stand up and say for ourselves, yep, I have now experienced and now I know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if he is Lord, then I have to surrender my other worldviews. I have to surrender my other thoughts and let him be Lord and center of my entire, entire value system, my choices, my understanding, my purpose. And as we go into our discussion shortly, um, let me just end with... To go up there, let me just read it for you. This is um, Paul at the end of his life. For those of you who are wondering, okay, I want to get to know this God, how? Let me leave you with a practical thought. Paul ends up going to Rome and uh, ends up dying there. But before he dies, he's in prison, and he writes this to his companion, Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, suffering. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? 
Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convicted of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you're curious about this unknown God, if you want to know if Jesus Christ is truly Lord, then here is the practical how-to. Paul says, go to the scriptures, go to the Bible, read it for yourself, study it for yourself. And as you learn, and as you read, and as you talk about it, and as you engage in the spiritual community that keeps us accountable, he says, you will find that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. And so I want to challenge you, if you have never studied for yourself, if you've never had that conviction for yourself, um, ask somebody for that Bible study. Ask someone to, to help you read through it, help you study it. And Roy and I are more than happy. Um, we love giving Bible studies. And so we're definitely here for you. But even if it's someone else in your life that you want to have that experience with, my, my desire is just simply for you to start searching. Go on that meaningful search for yourself, and it will change your life. And I pray that um, as we continue to engage in dialogue with others, that having gone through that experience ourselves, we will then know how to share that with someone else.